Hello, and welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm in New York City to talk with Colgate alumnus Craig Hatkoff. Hatkoff is co-founder of the Tribeca Film Festival, which was launched in 2002. In 2009, he co-founded the Disruptor Foundation with the father of disruptive innovation theory, Harvard professor Clayton Christensen. Hatkoff is the chief curator of the annual Disruptor Awards held in New York and Hiroshima. He's chairman of Lex, a real estate fintech startup, and serves on the boards of two New York stock exchange companies, SL Green and Colony Capital, as well as Subversive Capital Acquisition Corp., a Canadian-listed SPAC. Hatkoff has co-authored with his daughters a series of best-selling children's books, including the New York Times' number one bestseller, Owen and Mazay. Hatkoff serves or has served on the boards of the Tribeca Film Institute, the New York City School Construction Authority, the Mandela Institute for Humanity, the Wild Bird Fund, the Borough of Manhattan Community College Foundation, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Hatkoff graduated from Colgate University in 1976, majoring in computer science and sociology and anthropology, and he graduated from Columbia Business School in 1978 with an MBA in accounting and finance. Mr. Hatkoff, welcome to 13. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. All right. So in 2002, you co-founded the Tribeca Film Festival, along with Robert De Niro, in response to September 11th, in order to help the Tribeca neighborhood. Can you tell us just a little bit about how the idea of a film festival germinated, and maybe how you and Robert De Niro ended up collaborating on the project? When I was getting out of business school back in the late 70s, there was someone who I wasn't that familiar with, uh, an actor by the name of Robert De Niro, who back then, you know, had done a couple of films. Never uh, heard of him. Uh, but he was very, very interested in real estate. He was very interested in the neighborhood called Tribeca, which stands for the Triangle Below Canal Street. Hmm. And so when I first met Bob, I actually uh, met him in an apartment where he was training for a film uh, when I walked into the, it was a large loft space, 4,000 square foot, and the only thing in the apartment was a boxing ring, and it's where he was training for Raging Bull. Um, and over the years, I, you know, became, because I was in the real estate business, Bob was interested in real estate, we became, you know, just friends of friends and, uh, you know, became friendly. Um, but I did meet my, my wife, Jane Rosenthal. Uh, Bob and Jane just had a big night at... Uh, the Academy Awards, even though they were shut out, uh, they both uh, were intimately involved in The Irishman. And that's a whole different discussion for maybe for another day on the future <laughs> of film and storytelling, et cetera. But um, I actually met uh, Jane, my wife, with uh, through Bob. And this is going back to the early, she's probably the early 90s. And when September 11th hit, so fast forward, um, I made a decision to just make a career switch right around 1998, 1999. And by 2000, one day I just decided it was time to do something completely different. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, leaving the real estate day-to-day business, uh, you know, the question is, what are you going to do? And so I got involved in a lot of entrepreneurial, creative endeavors. I got interested in children's books, in music. Um, and 
an innovation, and that will come back to the whole story of my interest in innovation. Um, but the film festival after September 11th, downtown was basically a war zone. Mm-hmm. And everyone in New York wanted to know what they could do to help. And what really evolved by, I guess, early, I guess it was probably October, maybe November of 2001, so a month to two months after the actual attacks, uh, all the restaurants were in you know, deep, deep trouble. No one was going down there. It literally was a war zone. I mean, that's what it yeah. looked like and what it smelled like. Yeah. And uh, my wife and a couple of friends came up with an idea. Um, we went down to have dinner uh, probably in late October, and we were the only people there. And it was really a harrowing experience watching Chinatown, Little Italy, the financial district, that just looked like it was gonna, it looked like it was gonna collapse and go away. Mm. And so um, this is in the days long before uh, email even, uh, we started a very organic fax campaign, which is, (laughs) and it's funny, it's the friend of a friend. So 10 of us kind of got together and said, okay, you invite 10 people, we'll invite 10 people, have those 10 people invite another 10 people. Um, We we launched something called Dinner Downtown, I think it was uh, November. And on three or four different occasions, just through the power of friends of friends, in a, there was no Twitter, there was no social media, uh, people had comp, their, their email addresses were numbers. It was pre-AOL. Like AOL. Yeah, it was pre-AOL. And I think the first dinner we had ended up about 800 people just showed up for, at all the restaurants. Uh, we went to, I think, 23 different restaurants. And that became kind of a thing where for, I guess uh, we did about four different events it became pretty clear that what we needed was something, a purpose for people to try and get involved in the recovery because every, everybody wanted to help, but what do you do? Right. And then around uh, December 2001, uh, Jane Rosenthal, my, my wife, uh, came home uh, one day and said, I spoke to Bob and we want to do a film festival. Now, I don't know anything about the film festival <laughs> business. I'm just kind of out of the real estate business. And my answer was, oh, that's, you know, very interesting. When are you thinking of doing this? What year? I said, oh, no, next, next May. And I have to understand, there's nothing downtown. Like counting the months. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, this is not possible. You know, this coming May, you think this usually take, plus we don't even know what we're doing. Yeah. So it, it evolved very organically, but it's, it's actually, it was an experience. It's something that got willed into existence. If, you know, I'm a, largely a business person over the years, um, someone gave me a business plan of what we we're trying to do, you'd say, this is kind of nuts. Uh, this isn't going to work. We had no money. We had no films. We had no venue. We had nothing. But we did have Robert De Niro and all the celebrities who were willing, you wanted to help provide the neighborhood. So what started out as sort of a one-year uh, expected, okay, let's put on a film festival and show a few films, that was, uh, I guess, now 19 years ago. And so this year... Uh, is the 19th Tribeca Film Festival. I'm no longer directly involved. We sold part of our, our interest to uh, James Murdoch back uh, this, this summer. Um, but I also always like to make sure, anytime I take on something or start a job, I want to make sure I can work myself out of the job. You have so, an exit plan? An exit yeah. plan. Now, Jane and Bob are still going to be involved, but uh, I'm on to other, other endeavors, which, uh, but it was an amazing experience. And... Um, 
hard to replicate. It was just yeah. a moment in time where everything came together. I want to ask a couple of questions about the film festival through the years that you were involved. Um, and it's kind of incredible if you type in famous film festivals in Google, right? Um, Tribeca appears right in the center of all these international film festivals that have been around since the 70s or earlier, right? Um, why do you think it was so appealing to filmmakers and to fans? Well, most of the other film festivals, you know, and let's give credit to you know Sundance, right. Cannes, yeah. Toronto's a little bit different, uh, but all the major film festivals around the world tended to be industry events. Okay. And it's, they were marketplaces where uh, you would go see a film that you would otherwise not see, and one of the film distribution companies would, you know, in the early days, bid $25,000. You know, now it's in the millions. Mm. But uh, we took a very different attack. Our, our mission, the world didn't need another film festival, but New York City did. And so that was sort of the ethos of let's do something different and not, we don't, we're not constrained by any of the guidelines of what we can and can't do, but let's do this uh, to bring filmmakers, but also the fans together. And so, our, and we were much more than just straight film. Our real, um, the sweet spot for Tribeca is is really storytelling, and it's interesting, and I'll come back to it when we discuss innovation, but while Tribeca was interested in innovations in storytelling, so we have these new devices that we now carry out in our pocket. Um, we have Jeffrey Katzenberg launching a company to do 10-minute and under films. Huh. The entire world, it was really driven by how many screens and how far that screen is from your eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And so the traditional, the purest film festivals, really hardcore film, we were hardcore film, but we did all these other, we did video gaming, we did... Uh, you know, Vine, we, we kind of helped launch Vine, for those of you who might remember, I guess, today's <laughs> I remembered it was TikTok is today's version That's right. of Vine. Yeah, it's basically uh, the same thing. It's, it's kind of the same yeah, thing. Yeah. And so storytelling, whether it's a seven-second short film on your phone to a 90-minute film to a much more immersive experience. So, you know, Tribeca was in the business of innovations in storytelling, but my interest turned out to be the storytelling about innovation. Mm. And film may or may not have anything to do with that. So that was sort of, we built this very organically. Uh, you know, Bob and Jane were the film people. You know, I like film, but I'm more of a fan. I don't make films. Right. Um, but I learned a lot about storytelling and the power of narrative, huh. uh, which is one of the you know, great challenges we're having right now. What is the great American narrative right now? When, when the festival did start to take off, um, were you inundated with submissions for it? Was it hard to pare down what was going to be shown? Or was Tribeca more of something like come on, come on? Well, I think it was in year one, the goal was to get a film up on a screen. Right, that would have right, been right. defined as success. Um, I don't remember the earliest numbers, but we announced it in, uh, announced the festival in December, and the festival ended up being in. Uh, May 1st to May 5th, I think, were the dates. That's not a lot of time to do a global search for films. Mm -hmm. So, But if you take away the first year, the last numbers I've heard, I think we get about 7,000 submissions a year and show, depending on how you count short films versus you know, documentaries yeah, versus narratives, right. it's probably about 100 
150 films a year. Wow. Uh, at one point, we were showing up to 300 films, which we thought, you know, the big tent, something or It became too overwhelming, and people couldn't even figure out how what to, to go watch. Yeah, it's right, kind of like yeah. trying to find, what are you going to watch on TV? Right. right? <laughs> you have a thousand you better, channels. Yeah, you better, you know, you spend half an hour doing your search. Um, but, you know, I think, so our, our position in the, in the global market is really kind of different. And it's really a, more of a celebration. And it's a great launch platform. We were early in uh, video gaming, esports, virtual reality. So we're more of a, um, all forms of narrative, all forms of storytelling. That's so, kind of the, the gist. So speaking of the kind of the breadth of everything that has been shown through the year, is there any specific works you're most proud of that the festival kind of discovered or helped to elevate? I would, I, I would say there are quite a few moments. I, I wouldn't say there's a particular film or a particular platform, but through, well, I, I take that back. For me, my, my role at the festival at the time, we were doing a lot of, once we figured this wasn't a one-shot deal, we had to actually run it like a business, um, we, it became pretty clear quickly that the, you can't have a four-day event and a year-round staff. We better figure out other things to do for you know both the 365, you know, 24-7, 365. So we ended up developing a Tribeca channel. We uh, spent five years, uh, we put the, the festival on uh, in Doha for five years, in Qatar, or Qatar, as uh, Owen Mizay, Mizzi. I have a lot of uh, labels that I, I give great liberty in pronunciation. <laughs> well, but, uh, you fit right in on this podcast because I, I mess up pronunciation. Yeah, one all of our the books is, is, is called uh, Cecil's Pride, and it was Cecil the Lion. And in certain regions of the world, it's Cecil, and uh-huh. here it's Cecil. And so I seem to always pick things that have multiple meanings, which is you know one of the dualities uh, about labels. The thing that was most interesting to me was I was able to sort of very organically um, move into this innovation space. And over time, it was clear that while there were some synergies between film and innovation, our thrust, uh, given our connection with uh, Professor Clay Christensen, who unfortunately just passed away in the last uh, two weeks. Um, but that, to me, was the, the greatest, I'd say the thing that had the biggest direct impact on me personally. But it's, uh, you know, a thousand and one stories. Everybody's got a Tribeca Film Festival story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was part of rebirth, recovery, resilience. And so that was really very, you know, satisfying um, just to be part of it. Amazing people. To kind of wrap everything up with Tribeca, the festival has drawn 3 million people to the city, uh, generated $600 million annually. Um, And in 2009, you and your fellow founders were named 14th on Barron's list of the world's top 25 philanthropists. Is that tell me tell how did you how do you land on that where where does this money go to what is the well it, you know it's it's interesting uh, boy that hasn't come up in a long time <laughs> uh, you know most well it's a very interesting topic our philanthropy we weren't raising money we were sponsoring an activity and the activity itself was what was generating the the philanthropy uh, because it was someone has to always sort of break the ice and go first. Um, God, the Barron's piece. About we ended up somehow, if I recall, and I don't remember, between 
Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton wow. in the Clinton Global Initiative, and there we were sliced in. I would say it was more of an aberrant uh, question of judgment. Uh, for, uh, I, you know, so it well, said, you're on this Barron's list, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's like, I don't want to say embarrassing. It's not embarrassing, yeah, yeah. but we, you know, we, we never, we did this just, it was the thing to do. There it's were like never an any acknowledgement real... of impact, maybe. Is no, I mean, it's, we've, we've received quite a, quite a few yeah. honors, and I, I've also learned when they're, you're doing anything with Robert De Niro, there's one celebrity in the picture, so don't, <laughs> you know, don't confuse why the cameras are clicking. That's not, it's, that has nothing to do with me, but uh, no, it, it, it's, it's nice to have recognition, but it gets to a point where we just we did our thing, and yeah. it's nice to be acknowledged, but uh, it's we just happened to be at a moment in time, and it actually happened to work. It made no sense, but it worked, and that's kind of the you know I'll call the awe, wonder, and enchantment of life. Nice. Um, so it was wow. This you know everybody thought we were crazy. <laughs> I, I thought we were crazy. I kept saying, listen, I, I would tell them, I'd say to Bobby J, listen. There aren't enough words in the English language to talk you out of doing this, so I'm not going to try. Let's just go do it. And there you and, go. And Bob, you know, my favorite Bob quote says, "It'll be great." That's all I said. <laughs> I said. Okay, and it was. You know, it was great. It was great. He was right. Nice. So we'll switch gears a bit here. And in 2009, you co-founded the Disruptor Foundation with Erwin Kula and renowned Harvard business professor Clayton Christensen. Now, that foundation is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise awareness of and encourage the advancement of disruptive innovation theory and its application in socially critical domains. Can you talk a little bit about how that foundation came together? Okay, so this is a little bit of the storytelling. Great. Uh, I had met Clay Christensen back in 2000. I was working on a children's publishing startup. Uh, one of his students uh, was sort of an intern on the project, wrote it up, and Clay, who I had no idea who he was, read the paper and somehow ended up inviting me up to Harvard to come speak to him about it. Now, this is someone who had just been on the cover of, uh, I think I'm pretty sure it was Forbes uh, in 1999 with Andy Grove. Hmm the head of Intel, and Clay was the one who really inspired probably one of the biggest shifts in the uh, personal computer industry, uh, advising if you're going to be disruptive, make it simpler, cheaper, more accessible, and it create was behind the creation of the Celeron chip, wow. which was the low-end chip. And disruption is usually about coming into a market at the low end, which mm. is very contrary to the best-managed companies. They keep trying to make perfectly powerful products more, power. more, more powerful, yeah. more expensive, <laughs> more add-ons. And uh, so I actually met Clay through children, my interest in children's publishing. Hmm. Um, at the same time, I was introduced to a, an eighth-generation rabbi, Erwin Kula. And um, I think his mission was, if you know, truth be told, I was not a, I'm culturally very Jewish. Uh, I'm not a, an observant. I don't really attend synagogue regularly, other than for, I call it, life cycle management events, uh, weddings, bar mitzvahs, funerals. Uh, but as it's turned out over the last, uh, now, 20 years, my closest friend's an eighth-generation rabbi. And he, at the same time, was interested in what was happening in the field of religion. Mm. And so I was sort of his 
test case because if religion wasn't working on a day-to-day basis, um, why wasn't religion working for me? So it's almost like a scene out of A Few Good Men. Huh. You want the truth? You can't handle and it. You, you can't handle the <laughs> truth. And what's emerged, as it turns out, and I'll, I'll simplify the story, what I didn't know when I started dealing with Clay, who's arguably probably the most famous or was the most famous living Harvard professor, certainly a top five, um, he was a high elder of the Mormon church. And I did not know that. So I have a rabbi over here. I have, you know, famous professor, high elder of the Mormon church, and sort of what I now have labeled myself as a devout atheo-agnostic. That's my, 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 my new <laughs> self-definition. Um, but I was always fascinated by religion. Somehow I gave the rabbi a copy of Clay's book right around 2007 and basically said, gee, I'm not sure why I'm giving you this book, but I, th- I know you're interested in innovation. Take a read. And the next day he called back and said, oh, my God, I now know who I am and what I do. I'm a disruptive spiritual innovator. Hmm. Long story short, uh, we launched an initiative uh, to explore innovation and technology. What were the new technologies going to do to what was clearly the trouble, it's going, the symptoms and the trouble signs of the declining influence of religion, hmm. particularly in you know, the younger, however you want to call the cohorts or the social strata. Uh, but religion used to be a very strong cohesive force, right. and the statistics are not very encouraging, but that just is a discussion about organized religion. Mm-hmm. And so what are the what do these new technologies afford in terms of spiritual and religious needs, believers or non-believers? And that was how I got started with the rabbi. So we start in 2000. I know it's a little complicated. Christensen over here, the rabbi over here. And by 2007, we connected and we find ourselves in the Harvard Business School dining room talking about the world's most powerful theory of innovation and religion and spirituality. And so that's how the dis- and that then morphed into the Disruptor Foundation, which is much broader now than religion and spirituality. But uh, but we've been working with Clay s- literally since 2007, and applying it in um, society critical domains is how, probably the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. But innovation, if you're talking about a laptop computer or an MP3 file, there's it's pretty simple when you get into things that impact people's identity, their worldviews, their values, or belief systems, uh, whether it's religion, healthcare, politics, it's more like quantum mechanics than, you know, Newtonian physics. Hmm. And so that's what we've been working on with Clay, uh, you know, until his untimely demise. And, you know, our challenge is to keep, keep this sort of momentum going. But we've, uh, we launched the Disruptor Awards in 2010. Um, and over the last 10 years, recognized about 250 honorees. Um, to give you an explanation of who we pick and why we pick them would be challenging. It's very eclectic, idiosyncratic. Uh, it's an eight-year-old New York State homeless uh, Nigerian immigrant, immigrant who's New York State chess champion. And yeah. we'll have a Nobel Peace Prize winner. We'll have, awesome. this year we had the mayors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it's a very... Uh, I, I could, if Picasso were going to design an award show, 
he'd understand it. Right. It's We're, much less representational than, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a move into what, how can you also teach lessons in the context of an award show? So we'll get, we'll get into that a little bit too. I think I do want to ask a little bit about Clayton Christensen. You know, he passed away in January after a battle with cancer. And, um, you know, I wanted to ask about his, the impact he had, I guess, on you as maybe as a mentor uh, and how, um, you know, losing him, how will that affect the future of the Disruptor Foundation? Well, I think for both Erwin Kula also known as the rabbi, mm -hmm. and for, for me, Clay had an enormous impact. Um, he became sort of our um, guiding light, and he was always, he evoked every single virtue of what's necessary to, to create a good society. So whether it was empathy, resilience, he'd had four life-threatening illnesses that he fought for the last, you know, for the last 40 years of his life, and I think Clay's impact was when, when I went up to Harvard back in 2000 and walked into a classroom to meet with him, um, and he did one of his chalk talks. You know, he had a big whiteboard and a magic marker. He said, let me explain my theory. I didn't really know who he was, what, you know, what it was all about. And within 45 minutes, my entire life had been turned upside down. Wow. Everything that I thought I knew turned out to be either... Uh, a contradiction, a bit of a paradox. It's it's very counterintuitive. The theory is counterintuitive, which is don't keep making it better and better, make it cheaper and cheaper and just good enough. That's the key. Don't make it excellent because when it's excellent, people don't need all that, and that just adds to the cost and it makes it more complicated to use. So that one riff of simpler, cheaper, more accessible became a whole different lens to look at almost everything in every dimension of my life. Hmm. And, you know, having had the privilege of working with Clay in what is, you know, kind of what we'd call a little bit out there on the spectrum, um, you know, it, it was pretty, pretty wild stuff that we were doing with him. But he was always supportive, wanted to be involved, wanted to help, and, uh, you know, it was just a great privilege to have had the opportunity. Yeah. And so the three of us are, uh, you know, now two. But I think it means that we're looking at a couple different options because Tribex has been sold and mm -hmm. going through the new strategy. I'll, I'll be doing the Disruptor Awards outside of Tribeca. And we're looking at some things in the Middle East. We're looking at sort of global platforms. Um, but it's been a, a fascinating experience. I mean, if someone said, what was more interesting, the Tribeca Film Festival or you know, this whole disruptive, you know, disruptive platform? That's a hard one to answer for me. Yeah, yeah. They're both pretty damn interesting. Right. So like and those are privileges. Right. And if you'd said to me 40 years ago or 45 years ago when I was running around the quad, uh, this is what you're going to be doing, you know, 45 years from now, I, I would say, you, you know, you're, you're out of your mind. <laughs> so, but it's, it's, it really, I mean, it, it sounds trite, but I think it really is true. It, it's about the, the journey is way more important than the destination. The problem with destinations when you get there, what are you supposed to do? Mm -hmm. So my, I guess when you look at my background, um, I'd say when I get to a destination, I look for a new journey because once you've been there, whether it's in the book business, <clears throat> teaching up at Columbia, um, I had a you know very unusual but successful career as a you know emerging banker in the earliest days of the Wild West of securitization. Huh. 
Um, it just, you know, if you can go with the flow and just be very observant, just learn to, to look, to see, to think is really critical. So the definition of disruptive innovation theory, according to the Harvard Business Review, is that disruption describes a process whereby a smaller company with fewer resources is able to successfully challenge established incumbent businesses. Specifically, as incumbents focus on improving their products and services for their most demanding and usually most profitable customers, they exceed the needs of some segments and ignore the needs of others, kind of what you were talking about before. Entrants that prove disruptive begin by successfully targeting those overlooked segments, gaining a foothold by delivering more suitable functionality, frequently at lower price. Incumbents chasing higher profitability in more demanding segments tend not to respond vigorously. Entrants then move up market, delivering the performance that incumbents' mainstream customers require while preserving the advantages that drove their early success. When mainstream customers start adopting the entrance offerings in volume, disruption has occurred. So what has been the impact of the Disruptor Foundation since 2009? And do you feel like you have helped to disrupt the norm? So I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding. The, the word disruptive, disrupt, Disruptor has become overused. And it's this a buzz, was, yeah. It's, it be, and, and it was it always it, it bothered Clay quite a bit. And I, I think that f part of the problem is that formal definition you just read. How do you explain that simply? And I'd say rather than try and read the definition, let me give you a couple of examples that people would grasp. Okay. When Wikipedia first came out, uh, the high end of the market, the Encyclopedia Britannica's of the world, the academic class poo-pooed the notion of Wikipedia. It's that it's it, it's too it's too junky, and what they missed was that if for much wider audiences, I don't know if you guys would remember Encyclopedia Britannica. Oh yes, oh, you know yes. it was like whatever the current value was. You know, is like a thousand dollars in today's terms. Yeah. Well, you look back and today, I'll just give you the result. Where's Encyclopedia Britannica? They no longer publish it in print. There's an online version. They stopped their core business. And Wikipedia, even in academia, you know, one of the challenges when we talk about worldviews, values, and belief systems, if you're just looking at the footnotes at the bottom of the page, why isn't, you know, there shouldn't be any questions. Either the footnote's there and you go to the footnote and it's helpful or not. But Wikipedia is a great example. In fact, we had Jimmy Wales, I think year number two, so that would have been 2011. And it started off as kind of not such a great product, but it, funny thing, it, when you have a network effect, the more people using Wikipedia, the better and better it got. Now, certain right. things don't go there looking for uh, Hillary Clinton, where nobody can agree on anything, don't sure. go there for Donald Trump. Right. But if you're having dinner with someone and you want to know they have kids, whether they have two, three, or four, isn't that important? So the fundamental thrust of disruptive innovation is what job are you trying to get done? And that kind of comes back. It poses an interesting question since, you know, I'll ask my one question. You're asking me 13. What job is a college education or Colgate University supposed to be getting done for its various constituencies? And, 
you know, about talking to a student, what is it you want to get out of college? Is it a job? Is it to be a global citizen? Is it to be a critical thinker? Hmm. Um, and so when you go to all these more complicated dynamics, um, it's not so easy. That's why we say it's really different. Like it's more like quantum mechanics. If you've got the administration, faculty, parents, students, alumni, the community, each one has a different job to get done. That's why it behaves so differently. So I think the real role of the foundation was to develop this thread, focus less on the technology itself and make sure we understand how the culture or the identity component works into everyday innovation in these not, whether it's an MP3 file or an MP4 file, it's what does it mean in terms of your daily practices? So it's, it's been, you know, Clay at one point wanted to get rid of the term disruptive innovation. I remember saying, Clay, you know, it's your brand. I mean, you know, let's, <laughs> let's work on fixing, you know, making sure it, uh, it all fits and keep working on the theory. And that's all he wanted to do. He wanted to make sure the theory was, you know, vibrant and alive and responded. He loved to see things that the theory didn't predict. Hmm. He was, not, I can't say much more interested, but the anomalies, the things that the theory doesn't predict, is where you get what he calls profound theory. Hmm. And so we just had a front row seat with one of the world's great intellects who I'd say, you know, the rabbi and I look at each other and say, boy, this is, this is a, you know, an odd couple and an odd triplet, but he was, Clay was so intellectually interested hmm. and we weren't encumbered by all of the strictures and the biases of being in, you know, what I'll call a silo. We were just two guys interested, curious about the world. And we say, hey, Clay, did you see this thing? And he'd say, by golly, isn't that interesting? That was wow. his sort of famous retort. Hmm. So I want to continue on the theme of disruption. Uh, and this time, um, in your role as chairman on the board of Lex, uh, which is a fractional real estate company. Is that the best way to describe fractional it? Fractional ownership in investment-grade property, but which opens the market. So in today's world, and I have to now look back 30 years, when in my earliest days of banking, I was one of the pioneers and creators of what were turned out to be commercial mortgage-backed securities. Okay. And that was about taking a loan and chopping it up into smaller pieces and selling the pieces to individual investors or institutions. So huh. fractionalization of ownership. I see. But that was for debt, and that was back in 1980, the early 80s. When I came across a couple of uh, young entrepreneurs and they started pitching me this new idea, it immediately said, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I was doing 40 years ago. They're just doing it for equity. What I was doing was for debt. Hmm. And the reason it was so appealing to me is that there's something called, if you want to invest in the, st the stock market or public securities, there are accredited investors which have pretty strenuous requirements, your income, your net worth, that doesn't include your home. So for the guy on the street who doesn't have 100,000, 500,000, 5 million, 50 million, or 5 billion to invest, what are their options? And what Lex has been able to do is make these investments uh, available to, to unaccredited investors completely in compliance with the SEC and all the regulatory uh, requirements. And it would 
it's a dis- I mean, it's about as good an example of a disruptive right. innovation where now if you want to put in $100 a week, you can do it on your phone. Uh, you know, we haven't fully launched the product yet, but it was opening up to a whole new segment of the market. So it fits right into classic disruptive innovation. Wow. And unfortunately, I hadn't, didn't have a chance to sit down and talk to Clay about it, but it's, it's kind of funny. After 20 years, you kind of know what they're going to say. <laughs> so I'd say, Clay, I think you're going to find this highly disruptive. Wow. So, but this notion of democratization of investments. Yeah. So, you know, most people, if you're the big institutional player, you get the cream of the crop. Mm-hmm. And less than the cream of the crop goes to the guy on the street. And so it's a very, you know, a little bit, it combines the best of capitalism with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Wow. You know, so it's kind of uh, opening up the a whole new marketplace for investments in uh, real estate. So it, it just caught my attention. I'm known for looking at, I must see 10 new ideas a day. You know, maybe one a month is like, wow, that's really interesting. This one, just given my past, I saw it almost immediately. It was just the same pattern. So that's Lex. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, And so disruption also seems to be like the uh, Hatkoff family business as you and your daughters, uh, is it Juliana and Isabella? Yes. um, Helped to disrupt the world of children's books a little bit with the Turtle Pond collection. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, a lot of these things, they start with an intuition or a curiosity or a passion or I'm going to call it, what's your bucket list? And on my bucket list, I I can't tell you exactly when... Or, well, I can tell you who and when I got interested in children's books. It was probably more in the fourth grade or so. We had a librarian, I still remember her name, Alice Cross. Aww. And somehow I was just in the library. I just had a thing about children's books. I couldn't, couldn't explain why. And they seemed like magic. How do you make a children? You know, where do they come from? Do they invite you to write one? And who's this guy, Dr. Seuss? And, <laughs> and I just kind of always said, you know, one day I just love to do a children's book. And um, by, I guess it was uh, 2001, my daughter had to have, the older one, Juliana, had to have her tonsils out. And there's a lot of anxiety for a kid going into surgery. Sure. You know, what What do you That's mean scary, they're bringing yeah. me into this? And the only stuff you can show them are like army manuals of this is what an operating <laughs> room looks like, which was not very not, not comforting. No. And so we decided uh, we, we would keep a journal of her experience. Mm. And when it was all said and done and she had done all the diagrams and, you know, the writing, I still have it somewhere in my, I think I have the original in a safe somewhere. And we pitched it to, at the time, I think it was Penguin. And they said, wow, there's really nothing. You know, there's Madeline, uh, who has her appendix out, and there's Curious George who swallows a puzzle piece, <laughs> and then there's army manuals. There's nothing in between. Wow. And the job to get done, going back to disruption, was to reduce her anxiety and our anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so that's what drove that original book called Goodbye Tonsils. It's still, you know, it's it's still out there. People, it's 20 years old, and you know, we still, you don't retire on, on doing children's books, that's for sure. <laughs> but it's, uh, but I, what I love reading are the comments from people. You know, and one out of 50 say, this is terrible, but 49 people said, oh my God, you have no idea what this was able to do for 
my nephew Timmy. That's nice. And uh, yeah. I do get a lot of complaints about people who have to read these books over and over again. Yeah. And I said that could be said with any children's. Books. Yeah. No. No. It's true. Yeah. I say you have my permission. Edit. Edit wisely. You don't have to read every word. <laughs> you can skip a page or you two. Skip a page yeah. or two yeah. when they start nodding off. You know. But. Um. So another one of your roles is that you're an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. Uh, what type of classes do you teach, and is your teaching influenced at all by your time in the classrooms at Colgate? So I have been – I taught real estate in the early 90s, from like 1990 to 95. We actually started the real estate capital markets course at Columbia. Hmm. But that's a long time ago. That's 30 years ago. And uh, – I was, uh, I guess, somehow got involved. Columbia started reaching out, and I met a, a professor, actually quite famous professor, Sheena Iyengar, who uh, is Indian. She's blind, and uh, she is the sort of the author of something called the famous jam study. On if you put twenty-four jars of jam in a place you're trying to sell jam, you'll get a lot of traffic, but you won't get a lot of sales. If you only put out eight jars. You'll get less traffic, but you'll get a lot of sales. Is that right? Yeah. So it's oh, called wow. the paradox of choice. That's why so, all the uh, shops in Soho have like four items. Yeah. No. No. Right. Or an Apple store. Ah. You know. Remember, you used to have yeah. twenty seven. Now you can have. I don't even know the latest sizes. You can have twenty seven, twenty one and a half, or fifteen. And then you get down into uh, you know the iPads and the, the MacBook Airs. But when there's too much choice, we start to become paralyzed. And so I had I started a relationship with Sheena, who was very interested in both the theoretical stuff I was doing with Cray, but more interesting, I think, was the application, because I'm, I'm an applied innovator as opposed to theoretical. Um, and we started, we started doing a course. Now, Harvard is known for Clay and disruptive innovation, and you know, Columbia has its own focus. So we've started a whole platform, and I think... Uh, it's now going to be offered to, I think it's going to be offered university-wide called Think Bigger, hmm. which is about how to, uh, the, the tagline is, if you want to think big, start by thinking bigger. It'll get you back to big. Um, and we, we know what that means in today's world. It's the Jeff Bezoses, it's the Elon Musks, the Richard Bransons. And so I look at change management as sort of core to who I am. I don't really see... Well, I'm in a silo over here at Columbia. I do the awards over here. I'm on corporate boards. But th this kind of unusual, slightly, what's the right word, eclectic, hard to explain to someone, it's really about collecting as many dots as you can. And if you have a lot of dots, there are a lot more connections that can be made. So every experience, person, place, thing is just another dot in the... Uh, is another dot in the, uh, I guess, in the arrow in the, it's an arrow in the quiver, or, you know, an arrow in the quiver. Yeah, that works. Uh, okay, <laughs> I got it right. Um, and so Columbia, I've been working with them, uh, you know, we've started bringing our fellows, we've got about 400 fellows oh, wow. for the Disruptor Foundation. They've started becoming mentors and judges for the projects up at Columbia. Um, but Columbia is really making a concerted effort to, step up their efforts in innovation, entrepreneurship, social enterprise, et cetera, which is always fascinating to me. Hmm. You know, capitalism is, you know, is under assault right now. Um, 
And the only problem is, as the, the quote is, it's the worst possible structure you can have except all the rest. So, um, you know, I'm a, what's the right word to say? I'm a capitalist at heart, but understand what the shortcomings are. Sure. And so rather than throw out capitalism, um, let's see what it, and there's a huge uh, push afoot in the financial markets for what's called ESG or corporate social responsibility and where finance and anything that's for the, these society critical uh, domains, where those two things come together is sort of where I see my interest being really peaked. Hmm. You graduated from Colgate in 1976. Uh, so it was two years before you started on campus that the university went co-ed. So women on campus were relatively new. It was a transformative time in the university's history. Um, what was your experience like on campus? And did you know, like, was there kind of this legacy of, like, being an all-male school and all of a sudden, you know, well, there the, were women there? The, and the, the, the I, You know, the famous stories of the Colgate road trips to the local colleges, you know, Colgate about 100 miles from Saratoga, which is mm. Skidmore. Right. There was Wells College. There was Casanova. So in the days before women on campus, I think there was a lot of outbound traffic um, as well as inbound traffic. But not having been there without women, it, but I, I did go to single sex uh, all, from kindergarten through 13, uh, or K through 12, whatever we call okay. it these days. Um, I was at the Albany Academy, a military school for boys. So, hmm. for me, any place that had girls was like a whole new, a whole new experience. So I'd already had my single sex experience, you know, growing up, and it was, you know, it's an amazing. It's kind of an amazing place. Um, you know, if I were looking back, the kinds of things I wish I had taken more advantage of. Hmm. Um, it's really interesting. It's you know, it's always good when you're use the word, approaching half a century, uh, which I, makes me almost want to cry that it's that long ago. But I guess our, our year is 50. We'll be 2026. 20, Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. That's right. Um, but I, I think the, the mix, you know, and it was clearly driven, social life at that time was clearly driven by the fraternity system. Mm. And that, obviously, given the history, came with a lot of, um, you know, a lot of complications over the years. And when I, when I was there, the drinking age was 18. It mm. wasn't 21. So these may not sound like huge things, but it, it really does change the social life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I would say, you know, I had my fraternity house. I was a, a, a Phi Kappa Psi, which I don't, I don't think it's there anymore. Um, but we had a lot of women friends, and usually, you know, stemming from classes and, you know, near the dorm rooms nearby, I think we actually had a couple of mixed dorms. Um, yeah, I think we did. So I think the, the experience of single sex, um, I just didn't know anything different than having Colgate being co-ed. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me wonder about, like, um, just how social life evolves. So, like, to have such a change, right, so quick... And then, like, how that impacts the campus, I don't know. It's just, it fascinates me. Um, it's that, evolution. And, I yeah. mean, it's, 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 it's an evolutionary process. And uh, their arguments, I think, is very specific. We have one daughter went co-ed, one went mainly uh, single sex, and then did, uh, you know, co-ed. 
it's it's really anecdotal, and um, you know, I'm I'm open to hearing uh, the pros and cons of both sides, <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't uh, say I think. I, you know, I would never say like some of the, you know, I call it the purists, they didn't want women there, they wanted to keep oh, it the, yeah. you know, the, well, I'm not sure anybody really didn't want to have women on campus, but uh, um, but it, these are complicated issues. This is what we have to deal with. These are, these are cultural issues, mm -hmm. but when you think about it, we don't traditionally think of this as innovation, but this is innovation at its core. How do you go from a single-sex uh, male school to sort of a modern day without having a lots of lots of comfortable and uncomfortable circumstances, conversations, and that's that's change. Change is hard. So we're at question 13. Okay. Here we go. So since 2010, you've hosted the Disruptive Innovator Awards in which you celebrate the awe, wonder, and enchantment of innovation, recognizing innovators who disrupt the status quo for the public good. And last year, the Wall Street Journal published an entire story about the unpredictability of that ceremony, dubbing it the award ceremony where something always goes wrong. Do you have a favorite moment of disruption from those award ceremonies, and would you share it with uh... us? I guess, yes, I'll, I'll give two quick ones that come to mind. Okay. Well, three quick ones. One was there's this, uh, in our first year, uh, I don't know how well the Colgate campus knows the name Jack Dorsey, who was the founder of Twitter. I think they know it very well. Okay. Yeah. So the founder of Twitter, and we wanted to recognize Twitter in our first year. And Jack was a little, a little reluctant. He said, I'll come to Twitter, but I have this new idea. It's called Square. And Square, which is a little less well-known than Twitter, certainly since our current president has um, blown up Twitter in all ways you can imagine blowing it up. Uh, but, I, you know, Jack said, if you let me come do a demo of Square, I'll come, you know, it'll be kind of like a twofer. Platform, yeah. It's a platform and I'll come. And they were handing out, uh, everybody in America could have a free, it's, it's like a little insert into your phone at the time the, you know, whatever, the eighth-inch radio jack, and you swipe your credit card through it. So I'm saying, oh, Jack Dorsey, Twitter. Okay, that I get. Credit cards? Our main sponsor is American Express. So uh, we had Jack. He came. And I guess the uh, got picked up part of the journal, found interesting. I'm demoing Square with Jack, and the whole idea was to give him a credit card, and he'd take $10 from my Amex card. And... We do actually have footage of this, so if you want to run it, it's uh, kind of amusing. Yeah. The first like two swipes did not work. <laughs> and I'm saying, what on earth was I thinking about? How big is the crowd now? Well, at the time, it, actually, at the time, it was our first year, so there's probably only 65 people in the screening room. You know, now it's, a, you know, 1,000 people. Um, and so that was one. And then fortunately, I carry more than one, more than one American Express card which was my salvation, and on the third try, it actually worked. And you know, as I tell people, I never got the ten bucks back from Jack. Um, <laughs> but you know, it was, it was saying, okay, he, he's someone who's been wildly successful in two completely different markets. Hmm. Um, I mean, he's made billions of dollars personally. Um, so one was the the first year, which is almost you know dead on arrival when our big moment of demoing Square. So I don't know if you've ever seen the Steve Jobs clips when something goes wrong with the technology and he starts going crazy at everybody and says you have three minutes to fix this. Um, 
The other one, I guess, is the the more harrowing and vivid example is we had a pretty close relationship with uh, DARPA, the Defense oh, Advanced yeah. Research Agency, Projects Agency. And we were very early into the whole drone and robotics. And so I think it was our second year they had developed a uh, little hummingbird. You, we would th you would think it's a hummingbird, but complete with uh, audio, visual, it was the most high-tech thing. So sitting on your window ledges of what you think is a hummingbird, it's a drone wow. recording everything you could possibly imagine. So they brought hummingbird to the NYU auditorium where they used to host us at uh, NYU uh, at the uh, Stern School. And as the uh, gentleman from DARPA is demoing it, it's flying around the auditorium with about a thousand people in it, he lost control. And this little hummingbird drone almost took out three people. Oh. So it was a little bit of, uh, before, well, fortunately there was no uh, incident, <laughs> but it was ever since then everybody said, okay, what's gonna go wrong this year? Well, and this past year, uh, as it turned out, I was in the midst of having a ruptured gallbladder oh. during our last award show in last May, uh, or I guess late April, and the day after the awards, I ended up in the hospital. So I'm doing the award show, had no idea what was wrong with me, and uh, within 48 hours was in surgery. So, but the journal always, it was done for what's called the A-head. They're always looking for sort of these quirky yes, stories. Yes. No one ever accused the awards of being overproduced. <laughs> so, uh, and you know, we'd, it, it was, but it's organic and that's sure. part of the fun. No one ever, including Clay, he didn't know who we were gonna honor. Yeah. And he would sit there and watch for, you know, 90 minutes and then kind of make his pronouncements about what he had witnessed there that day. It's a lot more authentic if you, you never know yeah, what could happen, it was, right? uh, Yeah, it, it added some drama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was 13. Craig, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast and let us know how we're doing. Email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number with your thoughts or ideas. And also let us know if you have any questions you'd like to have answered. Have a wonderful week. And as always, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.